the Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading to verse 12 this evening. I do think one of the very few drawbacks to the book of Ruth is it's so short. It's the type of thing that uh, we want to spend a lot of time in, but uh, this week and next week will be our final two sermons in this series. Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading to verse 12 this evening. The word of the Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Machlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 14 this evening. The word of our God. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. Have you ever set your heart on something and you developed a fairly elaborate plan of how you were going to move from here to there to get what you wanted? It seemed like it was going to totally work out. And then a monkey wrench got thrown into your plans and it all blew up. Well, of course you have. But don't you hate that when that happens? The good news is this never happens to God. Nothing can hinder his plans from coming to fruition. So when your life is wrapped up with God in Christ, then nothing can ultimately keep the great blessings that the Lord intends for his children from being poured out upon you. That's true, but there are times in your life when it doesn't exactly feel like that. In the short term, it sometimes seems even though, as though God's plans are running at least a little bit off the rails. At the end of chapter 3, we encountered one of those short-term but emotionally challenging twists in the plans of both Naomi and Ruth. Now, you'll recall that Naomi has already experienced her share of sorrows. Uh, the fact that many of her sorrows were self-inflicted doesn't make them any less bitter. Uh, in fact, I want to suggest that self-inflicted wounds often hurt even a little bit more because we know that they're our own fault. Naomi had fled the promised land with her husband Elimelech and buried both her husband and her two sons in the land of Moab, outside the land of promise. The Lord grants Naomi a remarkable daughter-in-law named Ruth, but at first Naomi does not realize what a treasure she has in this young Moabite woman being grafted into her family, a woman who has pledged her life both to the Lord and also to Naomi. So Naomi returns bitter from the fields of Moab, that broken little town of Bethlehem. It is harvesting season, and her godly daughter-in-law pursues the back-breaking work of picking crops by hand after they have already been picked over by the landowner's farmhands. All of their circumstances seem absolutely crushing to Naomi until Ruth comes to the fields of Boaz, a man after God's own heart. We have to remember this all takes place during this evil time of the judges where people are living lawless, sinful lives, everybody doing what is right in their own eyes rather than seeking the will of God. 
And in the midst of that dark and evil time, Boaz's little farm is like an oasis of godliness. And to make matters all the more exciting, Boaz is a near relative. So Naomi engineers a bold plan to attach her family property to her daughter-in-law as a type of dowry. And to have Ruth propose marriage to Boaz. Now over the past eight weeks or so, Ruth has knit her life and her future entirely together with her mother-in-law. Now Naomi is responding in kind, knitting her own life together with Ruth. She's attaching all her worldly wealth to Ruth as a type of dowry, and that means that if Ruth gets married, Naomi is casting her own future on the person who marries Ruth, her future son-in-law. The plan looks like it's going to be an absolutely complete success. We are all ready for happily ever after when a pretty bitter wrench is thrown into the story. There is another man who is an even closer relative to Naomi than Boaz is. And that leaves us with two very difficult questions. Would this man, who we don't know anything about yet, would this man also be willing to serve as the Redeemer by purchasing Naomi's land from her and agreeing to marry Ruth? Second, if so, would Ruth go through with her commitment to marry the man who purchases her mother-in-law's property? Remember, Ruth thought Boaz was going to do it. She already had the man of God in mind. What if it's not Boaz, though? Would Ruth still go through and marry this man? And if not, how would Naomi and Ruth live now that they've been separated from their property and she's still not married? If it's disappointing for us to imagine what it would be like for Ruth and Boaz to not get married, uh, we can scarcely imagine how disappointing, how crushing the prospect would have been to Ruth and Naomi themselves. So now the action picks up, as Naomi said at the end of chapter 3, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man that is Boaz will not rest, but will settle the matter today. As the sun rises over Bethlehem, we come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Please look there with me. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, business was normally conducted in the, uh, the gates of the city in the ancient world. 
Uh, that, that's where the elders could be found, but it's also the place that all the people pass through. Uh, it might help us to remind ourselves that people didn't live on their farms. People had fields out there, and they all came together inside the town, with, usually with a wall around it. And so in order for the people to go out to work in the morning, they had to walk through the gates. In order for them to come back in the evening after they finished their day's work, they had to walk through the gates. And so business would be conducted there with a lot of people around and with the elders of the city sitting there uh, passing judgments, but also in cases like this, simply serving as important witnesses in significant financial transactions. And so Boaz makes his way to the gates of the city in order to meet with this other near relative who would have had to pass out to the gate in order to go out into his field. And when he sees this man, he asks him to turn aside and then quickly gets ten men of the elders of the city to sit down as witnesses. And they all quickly realize that Boaz is an important bit of business that he wants to get done. And this is going to be an official transaction that they're going to be witnessing, or at least they're going to hear the proposal to. You have to ask, who is this relative that Boaz is addressing? And all I want you to notice for right now is that he is not named. We will come back to that later, but it's actually significant that this person is not named in the passage. So Boaz straightforwardly lays out that Naomi has returned from the land of Moab and she is selling her land. He's also putting this potential redeemer on the spot. Uh, Boaz is saying, look, you have to make a choice. Naomi's selling the land. You either got to buy it or you have to let me buy it. But you can't punt on this. So he's pressing this issue so this other potential redeemer is going to have to make a decision one way or the other. Boaz is effectively saying, here are the witnesses, what do you say? Not surprisingly, this unnamed man jumps at the offer. He said, I will redeem it. And I think it's a good thing that Ruth and Naomi are at home. Uh, I can't imagine what would have happened to Ruth's heart if she was sitting there, hearing this man she hasn't even met, saying, I will redeem the land. I think it would have been devastating to her. Now, why does this man jump right on the opportunity to buy the field? Doesn't he realize that real estate investments can be risky? Well, actually, this one isn't. Uh, I have to explain a little bit about how the laws around real estate worked in the ancient world. And that may not be the thing that you just want to jump on yourself and bring home because you're not going to buy any land in the Old Testament. But it'll help you a great deal if you can follow this. Because the way real estate transactions worked in ancient Israel impacts both why this man jumps on this deal, which in many ways was the opportunity of a lifetime, and why he backs out of it when he knows he also has to marry Ruth. See, owning real estate in ancient Israel was dramatically different than investing in an apartment building in Boston today. Uh, most significantly, the people recognized that Yahweh owned all the land. They had stewardship over it. Uh, in this passage, it literally talks about the allotment of land that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi. Right? It's an allotment. God owns it. They get to use it. Now, the reason why that's such a big deal is 
from time to time, God would reallot the land. So when the year of Jubilee happened, if, if you sold your land to an, a fellow Jew, um, the land would automatically go back into that other person's family, the person who sold it to you. The idea is so that no one gets disinherited. Um, it would automatically go back so your family would not own permanent possession of the, fan, of the, the land. What essentially would be happening is, is, say there was six years to go to the Jubilee, you were basically renting that land for six years and, and, and confident that you were going to make enough money off six years of crops to more than pay for the payment of the land. But the land transfer itself was not permanent. Right? That's a very important thing for us to grasp. This truth changes how redeeming this field from Naomi, this allotment, would have been seen. See, the question upon Elimelech's death would not be, who would this land go back to? Or or there's actually another way that I mentioned last week. Um, If someone became poor and they sold their land because they were poor, the kinsman redeemer could buy the land back. So imagine buying a piece of property and you're basically giving someone a, a call option So that at any time, they could come and buy that land back from you. That's not such a great business deal. I mean, people did it, but there wasn't a lot of money changing hands because, well, you don't know. Next year, I moved into this house, and next year, someone might buy it back from me. And I know for certain when the year of Jubilee comes, the land's going to pass back into the land, into the, the family who originally owned that land. But then we think about Naomi. There is no redeemer closer than this man. That's why he's talking instead of Boaz here. Boaz is number two. So if he buys the land, no one else can come and say, I'm closer than you, I'm going to redeem the land to bring it back in the family. And Naomi is frankly old and not going to have any more children. And so when the year of Jubilee goes, instead of the land passing back into her family, it's going to stay in the family who is buying the land. Now, that's a little bit tricky, but the key thing to see here is this is a rare opportunity for land to pass from one family to another family permanently. Literally a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for this man who is very much fixed on building his own economic dynasty for his children, that his own name would be lifted up in great in Israel. He was trying to make himself wealthier, so he jumps at the opportunity. I will redeem it. That's absolutely central for us to grasp. Now, if you're looking out for number one, this wasn't just a good deal. As I say, it may have been a -a once-in-a-lifetime deal. And our unnamed relative jumps at the opportunity. He is ready to seize the day until Boaz explains that Naomi had attached the property to her daughter-in-law as a type of dowry. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I 
cannot redeem it. What happened? Why did this man go from being totally committed to redeeming the land to being unwilling to do so, even insisting that Boaz redeem the land instead? Put simply, this man is simply thinking about himself. Actually, part of the narrative artistry of this passage is just pay attention to the pronouns that this man uses. In verse 6, this man says, I cannot for myself, lest I, my own inheritance, my right, I cannot redeem it. See, this man saw the kinsman redeemer laws not as an opportunity to honor God, not as an opportunity to take care of this widow or to perpetuate the name of these fellow Jews in Bethlehem. He was only looking at the kinsman redeemer laws in terms of how it might benefit him in a selfish way. I, 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 me, my. This man was only thinking about himself. Once it became clear that serving as a kinsman redeemer would be about costly service rather than about a lucrative business deal, then he wanted nothing to do with it. Um, Let me unpack that just a little bit, why this man soured on buying Naomi's property. Naomi's attached it to Ruth. Uh, Ruth's a young woman. Uh, She hasn't had any children yet, but it's pretty realistic to assume she's likely to have children. The way the laws would have worked in ancient Israel is, if she has a son, the son would have inherited 100% of the property that Naomi was selling. Every last square inch of it. He would have inherited that property separate from this man's other children. The purpose was that Elimelech's family name and Machlon's family name would carry on in Israel and they would possess that land. So this man would pay full price for the field and it would not pass to the children he already has at all. Second, suppose Ruth has multiple children. The first son would get this land, the other children would divide up his current estate. Right? That, that is, the land in his current estate would be divided into smaller and smaller pieces Frankly, that's not the way you build an economic dynasty. Instead of getting wealthier, he sees each one of his descendants getting a bit poorer if he actually honors the kinsman-redeemer laws and also marries Ruth. That isn't the way you build an economic dynasty for yourself, so this near relative wanted nothing to do with it. Here's the interesting thing. This near relative to Elimelech wanted to establish his long-term earthly reputation in Israel as an important and prosperous man. Uh, He was managing his estate to that end, that he would be remembered as the father of this prosperous, important group of people. And yet we don't even know his name. In fact, if we go back to verse 1, please look there with me. Look back at verse 1. There we read, so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, translating is really hard work, but regrettably, um, the the ESV misses a really neat point. I actually don't know if any other translations bring this out well either. They miss a really neat point in the Hebrew. Boaz does not call this man friend. He uses the expression, 
Not a name, but an expression. Poloni Almoni. That's a way of intentionally avoiding saying the man's name. Now, Boaz undoubtedly called his relative by name, but the Holy Spirit is inspiring the author of Ruth to blot out the man's name from God's word by using a phrase that means something like Mr. So-and-so, or if you want to say it even more pejoratively, Joe Schmo, right? So this man's trying to make a name for himself, and God says, names out, we'll just make you anonymous. Mr. So-and-so is the one who did this. Here is a man who wanted to establish his own reputation and dynasty and who prioritized getting over giving, over serving. And this man ends up completely unknown to us by name and known only to us as the man who foolishly missed out on marrying this godly young woman, Ruth, and perhaps becoming part of the line that would lead to King David and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By contrast, Boaz is willing to spend and be spent for the sake of others, and Almighty God makes Boaz famous to the ends of the earth. Verse 7 explains the custom that was followed at that time in Israel. Um, The custom was that a person transferring the rights to a piece of property would take off one of his sandals and hand it to the other person. Now that might seem odd to us, but we have to remember this is not a time where it was easy to keep track of written contracts. And memories could get fuzzy over time. What exactly did Boaz say 15 years ago? Did you hear that correctly? I heard it differently. But everybody could remember, I saw him take his sandal off and hand it to Boaz. So it's actually just a very useful visual way of signifying that this transaction had taken place that none of the witnesses would ever forget. Memories become fuzzy over time, but this is not the type of thing that we would somehow misunderstand. Everybody would say, I remember seeing you take your sandal off and handing it to Boaz. And so the deal is done. And Boaz now has both the right and the obligation to redeem Naomi's land and to marry Ruth. Verses 8 through 10. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Machlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Uh, Twice in verses 9 and 10, Boaz repeats the expression, this day. Now, it's possible that that's just an appropriate way of talking formally about this sort of business transaction. But perhaps it also shows us something else. First, by repeating this day, Boaz is emphasizing how promptly he is fulfilling his commitment to Ruth and Naomi. And second, it makes me think of how Naomi's confidence in Boaz is being vindicated. Um, Do you remember what Naomi told Ruth at the end of chapter 3? Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, 
until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that is precisely what Boaz does. He settled the matter today. And do you hear how strongly and clearly Boaz announces his intentions? His purpose is to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, and the name of the de- that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Boaz knew that the implications of this decision for his own estate would have been exactly the same as they were for Mr. Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so. Yet he willingly accepted those consequences in order to preserve the name and estate of his deceased kinsman, Elimelech, and in order to be a blessing to both Naomi and to Ruth. While Mr. So-and-so was thinking about advancing himself, Boaz was thinking about honoring the Lord and blessing the remnant of the Lord's people. And all the people respond with a beautiful blessing. Verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The benediction consists of three parts, a blessing on Ruth, a blessing on Boaz, and a blessing on his household. It is beautiful that the elders and the people of Bethlehem would ask that Ruth be like Rachel and like Leah. As Daniel Block points out, this extraordinary statement demonstrated unequivocally that Ruth has been fully integrated into the community and the history of Israel. And that's the issue. She'd been a Moabite, an outsider. But this blessing shows quite convincingly that she has been fully integrated into the community and the history of Israel. Their blessings signaled the completion of her transformation. They wished that she who had arrived as a Moabite outsider would take her place among the matriarchs of the nation. Isn't that what the Lord has done for us as well? Most of us present this evening are Gentiles by birth. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and to the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like Ruth, you have been transformed from being an outsider to being a member with a permanent inheritance among the people of God because you are united with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second, the crowd blesses Boaz by asking that his name would become renowned in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. Uh, They saw that Boaz was willing to be considered a nobody 
in order to honor the Lord and to bless Naomi and Ruth. They wanted this honorable man to be remembered as a somebody. But even decades or centuries later, his name would still be renowned in the little town of Bethlehem. Beloved, their intent was good, but their vision was far too small. For more than 3,000 years later, the living God has made the name of Boaz famous even to the ends of the earth. Finally, the elders and people pronounce a blessing on Boaz's household. They say, may your house be like the house of Perez. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you've never said that to anyone. Right? May your house be like the house of Perez. But this blessing fittingly calls the story of Genesis 38 to mind. There we see that through Tamar, a Gentile, who had no children through her first husband before she died, before her husband died, sorry, gave birth to Perez through Judah. Um, There are definitely some PG and R-rated aspects to this story. But the important thing is that this line connects Ruth to Tamar and to Perez, the son of Judah, also known as Israel. Because Perez is an ancestor of Elimelech's clan in Bethlehem, they are saying, just as the Lord gave many generations of important descendants through the widow Tamar, may the Lord grant many generations of important descendants through the widow Ruth, whom you are now taking as your lawfully wedded wife. And that is exactly what the Lord would do for Boaz and Ruth. He would fulfill all three of these blessings in ways that were far beyond the wildest imaginations of those who were pronouncing them. And then as we step back to see the bigger story, we see how the Lord was preparing the way for King David, who would unite Israel and cause her to leave behind the tragic days of the judges once God gave them a king who was a man after his own heart. And if we keep widening the camera's lens, we can see that this is all pointing forward towards Jesus Christ, Jesus would become our kinsman redeemer, who would redeem all of planet Earth, that is his elect on planet Earth, and restore it to his people. Jesus would voluntarily identify with us through the incarnation, through his baptism, and then give his life that we would belong to him as his bride forever. It is beautiful to see how Boaz gave himself away for the sake of his heavenly father, And for the sake of Naomi and Ruth, but Boaz is merely a pale type of Christ who gave everything in order to do his father's will, to redeem us as his bride and to wash us whiter than snow. Beloved, if Almighty God would make Boaz famous to the ends of the earth, how much more would be this true, this be true of his own beloved son? As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, by his grace, we are part of the chorus that is pronouncing and singing these praises. We joyfully confess our Savior is our King. In love, we surrender our lives to Jesus, knowing that our kinsman redeemer first loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.